For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is, most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business, from the smallest startups to the biggest global companies, create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn about how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. That is a real company with a awkward name, but it really is their name. They produce and distribute this thing. I'm here with Gabriel Snyder, who has many titles, has done many things. Call you Gabe? I call you Gabe. I prefer Gabriel, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A little known Gabriel, fact. then. It's your yeah. name. Gabriel Snyder <laughs> has the Wired cover story that is out as we speak. It is about the future of the New York Times. Welcome, Gabriel. Thank you for having me. Sorry for butchering your name. Over it's all right. It's all right. Thank your... you for asking. I think I don't have a huge preference, but I really like the people who ask. This is my new thing. I know at the beginning of each podcast, I screw up someone's name. I say, did I get it right? And they're kind of like, mm. Not really. <laughs> and then we start from there. Close enough. Let's talk about the future of the New York Times. Yeah. Um, so you, you spent some time with them. You you got a lot of access. Mm. And you conclude what? The cover of, of Wire, by the way, is, is A.G. Salzberger right. Jr., the third? Which, which Salzberger is He's just is Arthur he? Greg Salzberger. No but juniors or seniors. He's effectively the third. No, he is the fifth generation God. of that family to script take the entire over. The, well, he he hasn't taken over, but he was designated deputy publisher, right. which puts him on track to succeed his father as publisher and chairman. He's 35? 36. 36. So this is the man who's going to lead the New York Times yeah. um, from the Salzberger family. He's on the cover. You get to talk with him. New York Times generates a lot of attention, quite rightly, the most important newspaper, I think, in the world. And their future has been sort of in doubt for a while. I think people feel like it's in better footing now. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, you know, I kind of went into this um, as someone who started this project late last summer, early fall. And, you know, at that point, it was it felt like kind of just the topic of media panels of how long is the New York Times going to last? Do they have when the will the strategy? New York Times stop printing a print edition? Exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've always been a uh, great admirer of it as a journalistic institution. And I think that, you know, some of the conversations that, you know, you and I probably were having uh, eight years ago uh, around the financial crisis was, you know, whether or not they were looking at bankruptcy then. And ever since then, you know, they've been trying a lot of different things. Their journalism has remained excellent, but I think the open question is just on the finances. Um, do they have enough money to, and I think their their goals is to keep a 1,300-person newsroom going. And, you know, I think a lot of the math has said that that cost structure is, is challenging uh, given what's happening in advertising. So right. I've emerged... Um, after spending a lot of time with them, I think I, I'm a little less skeptical. I think there's a lot of a lot of distance to go. I mean, basically, what they have to point to to give them optimism has been, you know, a really impressive growth of their digital subscription business. Um, They're now what three million subscribers? Well, I think that's the number they like to use, which is a combined print and digital. If you just look at and and they they keep on rolling up their uh, their digital number that now includes the crosswords, which is a great. I love the crossword it's app. People paying the money for a digital product. Yeah. So they're all digital subscriber number is what? 
I tend to look at the core news news subscription because uh-huh. that's the one that costs a lot of money. That one's like uh, starts about two hundred bucks uh, a year, um, and that one's just over one five. Um, and then you have another, um, I think, a couple hundred thousand on the crosswords. So, so one that's impressive. There were people, including people I work with, who said they would never get to a million. Mm-hmm. Um, they were going to be sort of fundamentally capped. And two, that number is has grown a lot since Trump, right? Since the election. Yeah. This yeah. is sort of one of it's Trump is is bad for the country mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, good for journalism in some ways and it's been good for the New York Times subscription business. Absolutely. They had a monster fourth quarter because of the the election. Um, they had 276,000 new subscribers um, coming coming online. So that's, you know, basically a, a nearly a 20% increase just in one quarter. So what what they've been saying, I think unofficially, I think they said to you in a more official way um, is we're m- kind of moving our whole business model to subscriptions. We're still selling advertising. We're yeah. still selling advertising in the print edition. We're selling it in the digital edition. But we think our future is going to be consumers paying us directly for for this product, yeah. like Netflix, like HBO. Yeah, I was I was surprised to hear the that kind of emphasis. I mean, I think I'm the, the piece I wrote mainly focused on the subscription business, and that's because most of the attention at the Times is focused on on building the subscription business. I think I should caveat that with saying that they still spend a lot of effort selling advertising. They have a whole native um, T-Brand Studios, which is sort of their ad agency, internal ad agency. Every, every big publisher now is, is now also an advertising yeah. agency and makes so, their own ads. So they're doing tons of work on ads. Ads are still a major, major component of their revenue picture. But if I were to kind of synthesize it, describe it, I think they're basically managing a decline in advertising while trying to grow subscribers would be the way I would I would describe how they're handling this. Two yeah, sides there's, of they're going to have ads to sell in, for years, just like, by the way, they're going to sell print subscriptions for mm-hmm. years because some people still want to read the New York Times that way. It's a big, important part of their uh, their business, I think Dean Bacay a year ago maybe told me that the the Sunday Times is is still the Sunday Times print edition is still the biggest mm-hmm. part of their business. Full yeah. stop. So when you hear them say that we're this is where we're moving, we're mm-hmm. going to become HBO, we're going to become Netflix. Those are their words, by the way, right? Yeah. Yep. They they're bringing up HBO, they're bringing up Netflix, they're bringing up two of the most successful subscription yeah. businesses. Um, that's not an accident. Yeah. Um, what do you think of those aspirations? Those are big. I think Netflix has 50 million subscribers yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. I, well, so, you know, the other one they bring up a lot is Spotify, uh, which they just did a deal with where they bundle the subscription um, if you buy right. a time subscription. Just 40 million subscribers yeah. around, the, around the world. Yeah. So I think what they're saying in that comparison is, you know, they don't see themselves in the same business as Netflix and, and Spotify and HBO and making entertainment. Their core product is, remains journalism. Right. I think what they're, they are, the way they're thinking about their digital strategy now is that they understand that the pure service of providing the news of the day has a capped audience. There's only so many people who need that. And so what they're largely, I think, taking a lot of inspiration from is a lot of what happened in the 1970s when um, under Arthur Salzberger uh, Sr., um, the father of the current publisher, and Abe uh, Rosenthal, uh, they had a they rolled out all of these themed sections, like the dining section and the living section. Right, the things that are completely standard in yeah. any newspaper, uh, but for the New York Times to do in the 1970s was was an astonishing break from tradition. Absolutely, it meant it meant they were doing crazy things like printing. Photos. I mean, it, you know, it, it was going from a very staid, 
serious, sober right. newspaper. And they were responding to the changes mainly in the local market in New York. Um, the This is the bad old 70s when their upscale audience was moving out into the suburbs. And then you also had a very vibrant newspaper market. Um, Murdoch had just moved in with the Post. Um, the Daily News was a was a thriving um, um, entity. And um, new, even Newsday was um, had started a Manhattan edition. And so they were losing that, that competition for sort of so that they, serious they news They loosened audience. their tie ever so slightly yeah. and said, here's a recipe. Yeah, exactly. And 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 they went after both they were following their readers out to the suburbs in into their into their big houses and 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 the department stores that they shopped at. And they were that's also where the advertisers were. And so they made a very big play to broaden the New York Times brand from being just a news brand and into being sort of a lifestyle brand. And I think that's sort of what they're thinking about the opportunity in, in the digital space right now is that when they make a cooking app or or they just bought, you know, uh, the Wire, Wire Cutter, Cutter, which is a gadget review site, that they can roll in services like that into their subscription so that they're not trying to convince you just to pay for foreign and politi- political coverage, but also because you like being able to, you know, save recipes on the on the cooking app. So, okay, this is one of the things I was a little confused on when I read the piece, mm-hmm. which is very good, is do they expect that these are going to be new products that they sell separately or it all gets bundled in for the same 15 to 20 bucks a month? So the, I think that's been the big shift that they've had. And, and I think that's where I was uh, thinking and I got caught up is, is about three years ago, they launched a suite of products like Opinion, crosswords there was a mobile uh, app nyt now nyt now cooking was one of one of those and the idea was that all four each of those was going to be a standalone product that they were going to sell a subscription to right they had varying levels of unsuccess on in that in that proposition um opinion didn't really have an audience nyt now had an audience but no one wanted to pay for it they didn't even bother uh trying to charge people for cooking they kind of just made it free what they they kind of gave they've given up on and and not entirely but i think the emphasis is now that they don't see the ability to stand up new freestanding businesses that that their energy and their resources are better invested into marketing one core product right. rather than trying to create with a, new a, a bells huge, and whistles and cool stuff yeah. in, the, in the dining section and 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 recipes you can save instead of saying here's a recipe app Right. Would you like to buy it? Yeah. And the answer would be no. Yeah. So I, I remember when they rolled out NYT Now, they went to South by Southwest and they hosted a party. It was, food was very nice. And they were showing off the app. And I remember them explaining to someone who does what I do. I think, I think it worked TechCrunch. And they said, oh, it has this feature and this feature. And they said, oh, that's all, all very cool. And they said, it's going to cost. I can't remember what the pricing was. Yeah. But it costs something. Yeah. It's like eight bucks a month. And the TechCrunch writer said, well, I'm, I'm not going to pay for that. <laughs> no one will pay for that. And that guy was pretty rude, but he was right. No one was going to pay for it. The Times was convinced that there was some delta between zero and one. And once you got someone to pay something, you could charge eight bucks or five bucks or whatever it was. They were very wrong. No one wanted to buy it. So my question is, do you think that we should give them credit for being the guys who figured out, oh, we had the strategy. It didn't work. We're going we're gonna to pivot. Or do you go, boy, these guys got this really wrong a couple of years ago. They were way off. And that makes me worried that they're not going to be able to steer the, the ship going forward. Mm-hmm. I don't think those views are necessarily mutually exclusive. That's a good, uh, good answer, Gabriel. <laughs> they would certainly say that they are, you know, they point to the NYT Now app as a successful failure, that they, you know, killed it quick enough that they, in court, you know, all of 
what they liked about the interface that they developed in the app, they've pretty much ported over to the main app. And so it's kind of remembered now as a, you know, a, a research expense. Right. Um, and this is, uh, this, by the way, sort of burnishes the idea that we're a technology company. I mean, they don't want to be a technology company, but like we're just like a Silicon Valley company exactly. where we have failures and failures is, is, yeah. is, uh, is applauded. And actually, I, I mean, I, I think you can be glib about that, but this notion of failure Thank is you. actually a really important cultural difference between a journalistic organization and a technology organization, certainly an organization like the New York Times. If you were to describe, you know, one of the words that came up a lot in the discussions was Timesian and sort of people deciding what was up to the standards and not up to the standards. And and there is not a lot of room for failure in that in that discussion. That you know, if you if, if, you know, the New York Times and, and and Wall Street Journal and lots of other news organizations are places where you know journalists take corrections seriously. They're they're going for perfection every day, and the idea that you do something and it doesn't work out um, can be viewed as you know a career killer. You know, for I come from that world, um, and and so it's a little bit weird when I talk to tech people, but you know. There are the tech people I talk to that you know believe and fail fast and all of that. They mean it, and and there is sort of this this noble failure. Having those two cultures live side by side is not natural, and and it's caused a lot of friction at lots of journalistic organizations, and including including the Times. But I think they now kind of view the there's a kumbaya around um, the NYT now that I think they kind of celebrate as much as sort of a, a example of you know, being smart about developing technology, but as sort of a cultural moment that they were able to somehow, you know, kill off a project without anyone feeling like they were going to lose their job for it. So one of the tropes of Silicon Valley is the founder CEO is sort of the spirit of the company. And they're the ones who, the successful ones, when it comes to a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates or a Larry and Sergey at Google, um, they're the ones who have the real authority to sort of make drastic changes. They're the ones who are empowered to do it. If you bring in professional managers, it's always eventually the thing sort of declines. Times is a very different model, which is you've got one family that's owned the thing and, and run it since inception. It's the fifth generation Salzberger, like you said. Do you feel like someone who's been born into the New York Times has the ability to sort of make whatever sort of drastic corrections and changes you would need to make the Times survive? Or is the argument, no, because he's family, he's not going to sort of make a hard right. He's going to keep that through line. Well... So A.G. Salzberger was, you step back a couple of years ago, he authored, uh, headed up an innovation task force in which um, he produced what has become a very widely read internal white paper. Um, the which, innovation report. <laughs> and I, I, I thought it was really interesting what he told me about that that report is he, you know, he's kind of saying, and I, I didn't see anything special in, or, or, you know, innovative in the innovative innovation report as far as new ideas. It turned into more of a cultural change document um, that sort of the way that it, um, in, in a, I think a little bit unintentionally, it was meant for just probably six people at the top of the company um, when it was commissioned. And then it got leaked. About yeah, I was it. surprised when I read that when, when he said, oh, it was embarrassing that it was leaked. It was, I thought, First of all, I just assumed it was supposed to be leaked. Yes, yeah. <laughs> of course it would be. That's how you get in Silicon Valley. You leak the memo, and also if you construct a memo uh-huh. in any company, it gets out eventually. Especially at a, at a news company where these guys gossip like fiends. <laughs> uh, so it was shocking that he was shocked that it was leaked. Well, 
based on what he and a couple other people who were involved were saying that that, that their their intention was that it wasn't supposed to be yeah, leaked. Yeah. One of the one of the reasons that it wasn't supposed to be leaked is because they were interviewing people and they quoted people. And so when they went to people and said, "This is we want to talk to you for this," um, there were some you know assurances made that yeah. it wasn't going to be posted on their on their website. And so. I think there was a remains a mystery as to who leaked it and why. There are lots and lots of compelling theories, but he says that you know that once it did come out, that um, it made um, you know I'm paraphrasing his quote, but it made it clear that the status quo wasn't an option and that change was was had to be done. And so the the productive conversation is how do you change? Lots of people could have said that. Lots of people had said that, but I think it was one of the reasons why people paid so much attention to that report was because he was the likely heir, even at that point, he wasn't officially. But Right, there was a bake-off, Sam, yeah, Sam yeah. Belnick, uh, Perpich. I mean, again, when you're reading it from the outside, like you and I were, you thought, they were saying things that, were, of course, no shit, right? Like, w- the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed do a better job of distributing news on socially than we do. Like, yes, mm-hmm. of course, but for the Times to even acknowledge that and even acknowledge that maybe they should take some lessons from these companies about how to make their great journalism spread yeah. was a big deal and a big deal for them to say, sort of accept that that was a, a, a thing they should work at. Yeah. Well, I, you know, this has been something that I've kind of, having found myself in some of these digital legacy conflicts at news organizations, both large and small. You know, I, I I went to go work with a a large news organization that I'll really rename remain nameless for for a second, and I think the the thinking that people had going in is that well they must there must be just idiots here they don't understand how the world has changed by the internet and they're still trying to do the things the old way, and I think that is the most common misconception about old media in in that people are unaware. Some of them are. Nah, some are, but 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 I think the people who are making decisions rarely yeah. rarely are. At least at least now. Yeah, I would I would say this this goes back pretty far. Um I think the reason why old media companies have so much trouble adapting is not because they don't know what to do yep. or or even that they should do it. It's because the internal politics of it are so difficult to navigate. There's internal politics, there's business implications, and this is this is what I write about all the time, is all of these uh, media industries, music, movies, television, music had a bunch of dumb people in it during the Napster era, but eventually they figured out, oh, file sharing is a thing. It's not going away, or people aren't going to pay for music anymore. Um, we've got to accept that. Um, and they all figured that out by 2005. It took them another decade at least to even move to a streaming model. Yeah. And even that, you could still argue they're still moving way too slowly. And it's they're not dumb. Yeah. It's just there's real repercussions to radically changing your business model, and it means you're going to miss the next quarter or the next five quarters or maybe more. Yeah. There, there's there's protecting the legacy business, and even today, you know, the vast majority of the, the uh, revenue comes from old streams at the New York Times. It comes from their print circulation. It comes from their even their print advertising, which is, you know, I think the industry fell off a cliff last year, but it still generates a lot of money. So you can't just turn that off, and if if you do it, it's at your peril. But but the Times is also an interesting place in that the it's a really big organization, and big organizations have politics. You know, one of the things that's always been the case at the Times is that one of my first jobs was covering the Times for the New York Observer when I wrote their media column, and you know the best every week you could come up with a new story about what 
every single memo and, and decision meant for the, the succession race for the next editor. And I think when you work at a place like that, you kind of advance along a slow moving treadmill until you get, get up higher. And that, and that makes it very difficult to introduce new skills into an organization. So you can see it on, on both the top end and the, and the rising sort of the young, younger people on the top end. Um, I think the best example of what this means is, you know, what happened with the dismissal of Jill Abramson, you know, what led to the the proximate cause that led Arthur Salzberger to dismiss her was her decision to hire Janine Gibson from The Guardian US, which was a very successful digital journalism operation, and to bring her over to be a top editor at the Times. That led to a total revolt and, and eventually led to a, you know, either her or me kind of decision for Arthur. And I think that... And by the way, Janine Gibson did not come. And she's she, she's she, now at BuzzFeed. And she's at BuzzFeed now. And she, she I think she, she turned it down probably wisely because there was so much opposition to, to outsiders um, in an organization like that. But the, uh, on the other side, the Times keeps on losing their digital, you know, bright stars because they're looking at a possibility where, you know, if you're someone in your 30s or 40s, you're 20 years away from a leadership position at the New York Times, and all of your contemporaries are running companies or newsrooms, and you're kind of looking at 20 years of working your way through middle management. Right, um, and that's even if you're doing well there. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to people who were rising stars there, and they said, well, that's fine, um, but I don't want to wait 20 years to ascend to whatever that position is. And by the way, that position's not that great, especially 20 years from now. Yeah. And so... I think if thinking about that stepping back, like that's actually sort of it's 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 a wonky, you know, Clay Christensen style like organizational theory problem, but it is sort of how do you elevate new skills into a into an organization that is that is highly bureaucratic. And I think the the you know what AG and the the innovation report was sort of a cultural change moment where they were trying to 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 break up some of those some of those um, log jams. So we've talked about business models for a bit, and I have neglected to support my business model, which is <laughs> advertising. So we can listen to this for free. So we're going to hear from an advertiser right now. I'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? Great. Because whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, I do not know what VPS means, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners can get 60% off. Go to HostGator.com slash Recode and find out more. That's HostGator, Gator, spelled like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R, dot com slash Recode. And we're back with Gabriel Snyder, freelance writer extraordinaire. Um, what, what is your day job? Because you're not, you're not writing New York Times cover stories or Wired Magazine cover stories day to day. Um, I What's kinda, paying your rent, Gabriel? I, what is paying my rent? Um, Wired Magazine this month. So that's, okay, that's nice. Being elusive. <laughs> um, so just want to get wonky here. We were getting wonky before about the construction of a story like this. Yeah. Um, the the ability to write a how many thousand word story is this? It's about five thousand. So it's pretty rare these days. Not a lot of long form. There's some more of it now. It's a little bit in vogue, or there was a vogue for it, less vogue now. When you go about constructing a story like this, you said you were working on it last summer, two thousand sixteen. The first conversations, yeah. For, so, yeah. So, right. So you have so even before so walk me through how you create. A Wired magazine cover story. So you're having conversations about the story that you might write last summer. Well, 
don't know how much I can go into this, mainly because I wasn't present for a lot of it. This was a, dis- this was a discussion. Um, I had a marvelous editor on this, uh, Richard Dormant, and um, and I think he was more the, the genesis of the, of so the story. So he wants to do a story. Yeah. He, at some point, contacts you and says, I want you to write this story. He contacted the Times first. So he goes to the Times <laughs> first, says, we, we want to commission this story about yeah. you. Yeah. At some point, tells you that he wants you to do it. Yeah. So this is the summer yes. last year. Yes. And then the Times lets you talk to H.G. E. Salzberger. I think that's maybe one of his first interviews. Gives you access to other people within the organization. Do, do they grant you that at the beginning? Do you have to earn those interviews through, through the course of the reporting? No, it was definitely with the understanding that I was going to want to talk to a lot of people. And I think um, there was, you know, an initial list of people that, you know, I thought would be really vital to talk to. And they said, sure. And so you then, submit a list to, and, to the comms there. Yeah, yeah. Just is like, I'd like to schedule interviews with these folks. And then I and we added to it. I mean, I think in the end... Last time I did a list, I think I talked to about 40-something 40, 40 people. And, you, and then are, the, are they being at the times being told, this is going to be a cover story because you've got this beautiful photography, or, or they, they no, don't buy into that? No, that, you know, those kind of decisions never get made early. I mean, the... Um, the so that's not part of the pitch. No, it's not we want no, to put A.G. Salzberger no, on the cover of the magazine. No, 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 no. Um, because, you know, these, these, these kind of features, they take a long time to do. But the individual magazines tend to get made sort of month of. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like, all right, what's 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 available, what's ready, and does it make sense as a magazine? And, and then what is on the cover is almost kind of the last decision. I have yeah, to say, yeah. I'm basing that on my work as an editor. I, 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 I was, was, gonna ask I was the writer in this one. So uh, my traditional writer's role in this was I had no involvement in the discussions. over. You just went out and did your interviews. <laughs> but when you're talking with the Times and they said, okay, you can talk to A.G. Salzberger for this many minutes or this many hours and here's the location where it's going to happen. Do you get the sense that they are, because you're writing this over, you're doing reporting over weeks and months, that they're sort of checking up on you and getting a sense of where the story is going? You're talking to people who are not on your list, right? You're presumably, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, some of that comes back to them. So sure. do you feel like you're being graded or evaluated and maybe if they don't like the way it's going, you're not going to get the A.G. Sulzberger interview or, or is it more relaxed than that? I guess so. There wasn't any tension like that. I think you always kind of wonder when you have a, a project like this, like why, why, why are they doing this? What's what are they, what are they looking for? But, but I, I don't think it's helpful to have that conversation of you know, what are you looking to get out of this? So we, we didn't we didn't talk we absolutely didn't talk on, in those well, terms. It was just very sort of, chill of the New York Times. Frequently <laughs> you get a what's the story going to be? What's the yeah. image? Are we going to be happy with this? I think you I'm know concerned about the tone you had in that interview. Yeah. No, there wasn't any. There wasn't any sort of like you know, if this goes well, we'll 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 give you the next thing um, at all. It was it was all it was it was very very mellow. Yeah. So this I, is something you start in the summer, 2016. It's February. It's late mid to late February yeah, now. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot of work online. Were you thinking about that while you're working on this print piece? That this is something that's taking six months and it's one story. <laughs> and and when I work online, we produce yeah thousand word stories in a couple of days or a sure. week. Well, one of the nice things about this opportunity was that you, I, I, as a writer, don't am not imagining the next time I'm going to have this much uh, bandwidth to put into a project yeah. like this. So, um, I, I guess with your editor hat, were you thinking, is this substantially different than a piece I would have written if I was assigning it yeah. and said, give me this piece in two weeks or three weeks? Oh, definitely. I mean... I, I would say the, yeah, long form journalism is just such a different beast than internet journalism. And you just have to know what you're doing. Um, you know, you don't want to do a slapdash 
project if it's depends on the outlet yeah and and likewise you know for example a lot of magazines i think their initial web strategy comes down to let's make magazine journalism but faster right and then they just make a bunch of mediocre mediocre magazine stuff let's make dumber magazines yeah so so it was just a very different thing i mean the uh some of my favorite stuff is that you know I got to uh, to to do didn't make the piece. I, I went in deep on the on the history of the times, and I I, I think that was my my writer's procrastination um, was to read more and more about the the incomplete history of the New York Times, and not I, I don't think any of that. And was there any impulse to say, oh, well, you've got this cool stuff? It's the cutting room floor. We'll pub well, the magazine has an X number of pages, but it's where it's also going to go online. I read it online. <laughs> Let's annotate it. Let's let's provide Gabe's greatest hits that didn't get in here. Uh, no, we've not yeah. had a chat about that, but I'm open to it. <laughs> All right, well, I'm, I'm not going to sign that to you. Gabriel Snyder, thank you for your time. Um, thanks for writing this piece. It's a good piece. You guys should all go check it out. It's probably available for free online. Yes. You may not have to buy it. Fire.com. But I'm sure uh, the folks at Condé Nast would be happy if you bought a subscription as well. Um, I'd tell you to go support Gabriel Snyder's new thing, but he won't tell me what it is, so can't help you there thanks to you guys for listening you enjoyed it i enjoyed doing these things um i just did uh, a day and a half of this stuff over at code media it's our big fancy tech and media conference in california talk to eddie q who runs media for apple marty baron runs the washington post many other interesting folks stacy snyder who runs fox um you do not have to pay thousands of dollars to hear what we talked about you can hear it for yourself over at recode replay Kara Swisher has a show, uh, Recode Decode. Lauren Good has Too Embarrassed to Ask. You know how to find all that because you are bright people. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Amazon Web Services and HostGator. Thanks to Digital Media who sells those ads and distributes this show to you for free. Thanks again, Gabriel. I'll be back next week with another great guest. See you then.